0: So yeah, first I want to say thanks to Fred and Marty and Greg for allowing me this opportunity to come up here with you guys, and thank you guys for coming this morning. It's cold. And I always think if, if it's cold for me, being a bigger guy, I can't imagine what it's like for you smaller, skinnier folks. <laughs> it's got to be really cold. So thank you, especially for you guys for coming out <laughs> this morning. Um, but yeah, so if you guys have known me, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a pretty... Uh, Nerdy guy, I like a lot of geek culture stuff that we would consider geek culture stuff. um, I work from home, so and right now I work construction business, and we're pretty dead. We're pretty slow, and uh, so I have a lot of free time on my hand. So I get to to watch a lot of TV work and and do a lot of reading and stuff. And so I was watching Netflix a couple weeks ago, and I came across this uh, the series called The Toys That Made Us. Anyone ever see that on Netflix? The Toys That Made Us. There's also another one called I think the. The movies that made us, which I have also watched that one. Again, I have a lot of free time, so I get to watch a lot of stuff. Um, So, the toys that made us. This, uh, for a kid who was born in the early 70s and who grew up in the 70s, early 80s, as you know, in my prime kid's years, you know, we, we, at first, didn't have a lot of cool things to play with. We had cars and Tonka trucks and things like that, but there was nothing really cool like, that we could call our own. No action figures, right? And I'm a big action figure guy when I was growing up. I loved it. Loved superheroes, and, uh, and I loved just the idea of being able to create and use my imagination to create this entire war and, you know, with my action figures. Girls had Barbies, right? That was the, the big thing for girls. And and I remember the first really true action figure I got was this, this G.I. Joe doll. I'm sorry, G.I. Joe action figure. We don't want to call it doll. We're boys. We don't play with dolls, right? <laughs> G.I. Joe action figure. And, and this was the counter to Barbie. And what separated it, one, was it a bunch of articulation, you know, things like that you could play with. But it also had this cool thing, and their hands were, you know, Barbie's hands were always flat, right, and still are, I believe. This one had a hand like this, and they call it the, the, the Kung Fu action grip. Kung Fu, just a grip, that's what it was. But, but they had to make it cool and they called it Kung Fu. So that was, that was like our experience with toys. But then around this early, late 70s, early 80s, this movie, small independent movie called Star Wars came out. I don't know if you guys ever heard of it. But this Star Wars movie came out, right? And all of a sudden now we have this influx of cool action figures of cool toys to play with. We had these Star Wars figures, all of them that were in the movie. And this was my jam, right? I was collecting these Star Wars figures like nothing. My dad and mom were like, come on, Sean, you don't want any more of these things? Sure I do, bring them all. Then they had, after Star Wars, G.I. Joe was reintroduced into a smaller scale, and we got all these cool G.I. Joe toys. And then around like the 83-ish, 84, there was another toy introduced, and my brother, um, who's a little younger than me, but we it was cool. We had all these different toys we play with and have big giant bedroom battles, and his toys, my toys, we go at it. But he started collecting these toys called He Man right, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And these toys were pretty cool because they were a little bigger than what the G.I. Joe and Star Wars toys were. They were muscular and they didn't really do much. They moved up and down, but they had like these cool features, right? You had this guy called Ram Man, press his button in his head would come flying out, and the other guys that were, do cool stuff, right? And I could go on for probably this whole time and talk about this, but I don't wanna to spend too much time. But, but what from these He-Man toys, there, there's this cartoon that was created, right? And anyone who was in the early 80s growing up, I'm sure you've watched He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, right? And He-Man was was portrayed, he had this uh, alter ego called Adam. And Adam was kind of, not a real cool dude, you know. But it's funny because Adam looked just like He-Man, so I don't know where the alter ego came from. They are the exact same guy, except different clothes. But but anyway, Adam, for him to be able to change to He-Man, to, to be this hero, had to bring this power sword, raise it up, and yell out, I have the power! Right? And he had this power, and all of a sudden he would transform into He-Man. Basically change his clothes. That's not what happened. But he would transform into He-Man. Now prior to this cartoon, though, these, these toys, and we're going to go back to this and Wendy here, these toys had these little comic books in them. And these comic books were, were the story of He-Man. And this was different than what the cartoon was. And this, I don't know, a lot of people know this, but, but He-Man was basically just a barbarian type guy, Conan the Barbarian. He, he, you know, had this sword, but it wasn't the full sword. On the other side, his, his evil counterpart was Skeletor. Skeletor had the other half of this sword. Right? And so they were in this constant power struggle for these swords. Right? They wanted to get the other half because the other half, when combined, would then allow them to have all the power they needed. This passage that we're going to go through is basically that, a power struggle. Let's jump into our Bible. We're in John 19. We're going to start at verse 1. And Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is your man. When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourself, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the laws, the Jews replied to, to him. And according to the law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back to the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down and at the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. And he told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Let's pray. Dear God, I ask right now, Lord, as we go through this, this passage and we remember all that you did for us, this pain and the suffering that you endured for us, Lord, I pray that it's a reminder of truly how much you love us. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would open them now and Lord, we receive the word that you have for us. We ask that you just take control right now. In your name we pray. Amen. So again, we have this power struggle. These three sides, right? First, you have Jesus on one side. Then you have Pilate on the other side. And then on the third side, you have um, the high priest, the church leaders, and the Jews. Right? My first point will make us right away. Power and authority without God blinds us spiritually. Right. Two of these sides that we have here, Pilate and the, the church and the Jews, right, have some authority that was appointed to them, that was given to them. Right. But here's the problem is with this authority, they have their own agenda. They have their own ideas of how they want to use this power. And you think about if you've ever been in a situation where maybe you have a boss that you've worked with who, who's given some power and some authority, and, and you see sh- they clearly are using this power and authority for their own agenda, to push themselves, whether it be push themselves higher in their ranking, or maybe they want something that, that, that they weren't able to get prior to having some power and authority, now they want to push to get this power and authority. Maybe ourselves have been in a position where we've been given a little power and authority, and, and, and it becomes less about what it should be, God, and more about what Sean wants or more about what you guys want. When we get power and authority that is not from God, that power and authority tends to change who we are a little bit and pushes us towards a selfish nature that we naturally have. And this, as we go through these verses, are going to see this played out. These two sides fighting to push their own agenda, to get what they want, And you're going to see this third side who doesn't have an agenda. Who knows exactly what he's there for. And doesn't need to say anything to get it. Which is an amazing thing. John 15, 4 through 5 says, Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, and neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because without me, you can do nothing. Or you can do nothing without me. Unless we have God who gives us that power and authority, unless we remain in him, anything that we have, anything that we try to do without him is impossible. Now we might be able to to do some stuff when we have some power and authority, but I assure you everything that we're doing really serves no purpose in the big picture. Because everything that we get here, we can't take with us. And that's the reality of it. So let's re- look into verse 1 here. and It really just starts us out just, uh, you know, a fun way to really start a chapter. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now, it's interesting in, in the other, four gosp- other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that, that basically it's the same exact line, right? He had him flogged. There's not a lot of details paid to this Portion of what's going on here. And I think the reason is probably because it's a gruesome act that's happening. And they really don't want to kind of reflect on what they're seeing at this very moment. But I do think it's important for us as believers to, to remember exactly what God did for us. So we're gonna talk a little bit about this. I won't get any graphic details um, because I think it's 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 tough to, to really think about. Uh, but Flogging was basically a punishment that the, the Romans would, would, and there's a lot of other people that do flogging, but specifically we're talking about the Romans here, that they would bring apart to criminals or prisoners, um, and there was three different stages of, of flogging, right? You had the first stage of flogging, which was basically to, you know, someone who maybe did a petty crime, as we might think of it today, nothing too egregious, but they needed to be punished, so they would take them they'd have them flogged, and then they would send him on his way right? Don't do it again. You messed up. Come back here again. We're going to be a little more aggressive with this, And keep in mind too, the Romans, the soldiers specifically who were doing this, it really, a a lot of the severity of this flogging depended on their demeanor at this current day. Were they bored? Were they angry about something? Because truth be told, Pilate or whoever else was sending them to be flogged really wasn't present for this. They sent them, you do it, deal with it, and then bring them back. Right? So the second level of this was, was typically for prisoners who, you know, they, they weren't being very agreeable, they, they weren't, weren't, weren't talking, they weren't giving information that, that maybe Pilate or another governor or anyone else wanted, so they would make this punishment a little bit more severe, not to really kill them or do anything like that, but, but simply to get information from them, beat them enough so that they talk, right? torture them enough so that they speak and give me what I need. All right, then we have the third one, and this is what most people speculate that, that Jesus dealt with, the third step of flogging. And this was where they really, truly go with the intentions to, to severely hurt and cause pain to the person being flogged. What they would do is they would take, and this would be the case for all of them, but they would take them, and they usually a tree stump or, um, uh, that they would have there, a log of some sort or a piece of wood, and they would take the, a chain and put it around their arms, and they'd stretch them around this log so that it stretches out their back and makes it tighter. Right? And they put them on their knees, and they would start, and there was usually two guys doing this, one on each end, and they would just take turns, one after another, whipping and beating the prisoner. These whips that they used weren't your typical whips either. They were they were a piece of wood um, that they would then attach strips of leather to. And, and and then the ends of these strips of leather, they would attach bone or they would attach rock or glass so that when they're whipping, that then it makes contact and it starts to pull and rips into the, the prisoner's body. And if they were really... Soldiers, that is, if they were really into this, they would then take the prisoner and flip him over and they would then work on the front side of them. They would beat the legs. They would beat their feet. Every inch of skin that they could see, they would whip. This is what Jesus endured for us. Verse two, the soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and clothed him with a purple robe. Now, this isn't necessarily anything to to cause more pain and suffering. This was simply to mock and make fun of Jesus. This was the Roman soldiers hearing the stories about who this guy is, right? And they said, you know what? Let's have some fun with him. Let's poke some fun with him. Let's get a crown of thorns, stick it on his head, push it in, give him a robe, and then parade him around like he's a king. And we'll laugh at him and we'll make fun of him. Now, there are some people out there might say that this is, a, this is you know, emblematic of, of you know, the curse we see in, in Genesis three seventeen through 18. He says, Adam said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat from it and the days, all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Now, I don't know if this is truly a connection here, but there is some some symbolism there, right? You have Adam, who was the first man, right? And he was born, and he sinned, and he sinned, and he said, now you're going to have to deal with this. And one of those was thorns that we'll have to deal with. Now we have Jesus all this time later, who is about to take the sins of the world away from us, and he was put on a crown of thorns. So, but again, just thought I'd throw that in there because it's something I read and I thought it was an interesting point. Um, but yeah, this was just simply to, to parade him around, these crown of thorns. and these. Now, there are obviously pain if you're going to have thorns in your head. And the robe itself, while not painful putting on, as the day goes on and these wounds start to not heal up, but to dry up. And, and when he took them to the cross and they ripped the robe off, that would then pull all that fresh you know, scabs and fresh skin, and, and, and bleed again. And keep in mind that, and I, and I should have mentioned this early, but the, the 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 third step of the of the, the flogging was specifically used to prepare these prisoners for um, crucifixion, so that they wouldn't last as long as as they normally would if they weren't bleeding out. Right. All right. So then, verse three, he says, and they kept coming up to him and saying, "Hail, King of the Jews." and they were slapping his face. The Romans, again, we talked a little bit, they they get bored, and they want to to entertain themselves. So what they would do, you guys remember when you were a kid, you played a game called Hot Hands? You ever play that? I don't know why we ever did it, it's stupid, but you put your hands here, your friends put your hands there, you see how fast you can slap each other's hands, and by the end of it, you all look like idiots because your hands are bright red, and you're hurting for a little bit, right? They would do something similar to this, but... Much worse, they would take these prisoners and literally they'd line them up, they'd get in the line, the prisoner here, and they would take turns just rotating around and smacking and punching the prisoners in their face, all to see who gets the best reaction, right? Who could inflict the most pain on this prisoner? This is what Jesus endured for us. Why? Why did he endure this for us? I don't know specifically if it's clear as to why it is, but I think there's a couple reasons. First and foremost, God sent Jesus here to be perfect for us, to a representation of what righteousness looks like, right? And despite all that Jesus suffered through, despite all that Jesus went through, he remained perfect in it all. Secondly, I think Jesus was sent here by God and endured these pains And endures these sufferings so that he can truly demonstrate the love that he has for his people. So as we look back and we reflect on what God did for us, we recognize that God did all of this because he loved me so much. And he was willing to endure all of this because he loved me so much. And thirdly, I think what he did here was was he wanted to show us that despite everything that we have going on in our lives regardless of the suffering that we may be going through, regardless of the struggles that we may be having, that that we are able to overcome it. God sent Jesus who became flesh, a man just like us, and endured pain and suffering, endured temptations, and he overcame it and remained perfect. As we grow closer to God, and our relationship becomes stronger with God, we can overcome any struggle and pain and suffering that we may be going through in our lives. God gives us this example. I believe these are the reasons why he went through this. Verse four, Pilate went outside again and said to them, look, I'm bringing him out to to you to let you know that I find no grounds for charging him. Here's the first time we see Pilate who finds no fault in Jesus, right? What is going on? We, 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 we have this guy, and I, I don't think there's anything that he's done that deserves what you guys are asking for, but here's what I did. I punished him, and now I want you guys to see what I've done for this, for him, I don't think he's wrong, but hopefully this is enough, right? Hopefully this is enough. And he said, Jesus came out, in verse 5, Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns in the purple road. Pilate said, here is the man. Here's this guy that you brought before me, crying to be crucified, telling me he did all these things wrong. Look at this man. He's prating him around. Look how pathetic this guy is. I've beaten him. He's weak. What can this guy do? this man do to you now why are you so worried about what's going on with him he's just a man he didn't stop me from beating him there's nothing really truly special about this guy this is what Pilate's intentions was to to try to to try to sway the Jews and the high priest to to let him okay you're right we see that it's good you can let him go You can let him go, but quickly in verse six, we see that's not the case at all, right? Verse six, he says, when the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. They were out for blood and nothing was gonna change their mind. No weak, pathetic looking man who was just beaten is gonna be enough for what they were wanting. They wanted more. Pilate wants nothing to do with this. So he responds, take him and crucify him yourself since I have no grounds for charging him. Here, fine, you want him crucified, take him yourself. I don't want anything to do with this. He didn't do anything wrong according to what I believe. Now again, this is Pilate, the governor who has all the power in the world. Here we are twice now. Pilate, the governor who has all the power and authority, who simply could have said, No, 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 no. There's nothing wrong with him. I'm releasing him. Enough. See you later. Get out. I'm done with this. This guy's innocent. There's nothing he's done. I've already beaten him. That's enough. Send him on its way. He had the power and authority to do this, didn't he, as the governor? So we thought. Verse 7, we see we have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now, here is the the reason that the Jews, the high priests, wanted him crucified, right? They've already made false accusations, they brought false witnesses, right? We've seen this over the last couple chapters. Right, but now this is it. This is the this is what it comes down to. This guy calls himself the son of God. We see this in Leviticus 24:17, this law that he's talking about. He said, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. Well, he didn't call himself the Lord. Well, he did, in a sense, right? He called himself the son of God. And he's saying, basically, if God is here and he has a son, that son is God himself. Right? Just like if I my son Isaiah. You know, I'm a Fenner. I had a son, Isaiah. He's a Fenner as well, right? Fenner has a Fenner. God has a God. The Jews, the high priest knew this. They knew the laws. Obviously, they just said, you know, he deserves, he ought to be crucified because he called himself the son of God. They knew also what was prophesied, right? That this guy was coming to save the Jews, to become king. Yet here we are, them wanting him crucified. And interestingly enough, I, I find this, this, this part here, it says, and, and John points this out specifically, he said that the chief priests in verse six, the chief priests and the temple servants saw him and they yelled crucified. But in verse seven, it's not the chief priests, it's not the, the church people, it's the Jews who cry out and say, we have a law. So at this point in time, what's happened here, again, the chief priest, and the, and the high priest and the, and the church leaders, again, thinking they have power, have now at this point persuaded the Jews who were in attendance to agree with them. Whether they believe that when they first came in or not, at this point in time, they're siding with the high priest in the church. And I imagine this is like this, this slow clap moment, right? The chief priest yell out, crucify! Crucify. You know what I'm talking about slow clap, you get one guy, claps, and next thing you know, other guys clap, and next, you have this big, roaring clap. This is what's happening here. There's a, in Braveheart, I don't know if you guys have seen Braveheart, one of my favorite movies, but there's a scene at the end of the movie where Bra- uh, William Wallace is being presented as a criminal, and they have him up there being tortured, and I'm not going to go into details because it's pretty terrible, but they have him up there being tortured, and and uh, all to get a confession, right? He was portrayed by someone who, who was close with. And he was brought to be tortured to get a confession. Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> and here he is being tortured, trying to get this confession out. And he's not speaking. He's not talking. He's not giving up anything. And out of the crowd, you hear, mercy, mercy, one voice, and then another voice, mercy, mercy. And before too long, the entire crowd is yelling mercy. This is what's happening, I believe, here, right? This entire crowd, but not for mercy, but for blood. The opposite. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. These Jews have turned on Jesus. They want blood. Pilate has a weird reaction to this a little bit, right? He says in verse eight, when Pilate heard this statement, He was more afraid than ever. The governor, the guy in charge, the man who was supposed to to rule this region was more afraid than ever. Why was he so afraid? What scared him so much by this statement? That this was the son of man. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is, you know, the Romans knew Greek mythology and they knew that there were times where, where, where these gods would come down to earth and they would do their thing and they, they'd meet and fall in love with the humans and they would have kids and there'd be gods running around, right? This is mythology. They thought this. But I think it was more than that. I think Pilate was genuinely getting a sense that Jesus was more than just an average man. Right? He wasn't just a guy who, who who was being punished, who who did some stuff that was wrong. He was more than that. In fact, Matthew seven twenty-seven nineteen, it says, while he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent him word to him, "Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him." His own wife sent him a message. Why he's going through all of this? This riotous Jewish congregation. This man who is sitting there just being beaten, who's on trial to be crucified, and his wife sends him a message saying, dude, back off with this guy, just let him go. We don't want anything to do with him. I had a terrible dream that this guy is something more, and Pilate is getting a sense of this. He's trying to get an understanding, what can I do? How can I get out of this situation? So verse nine, he says he went back into the headquarters, brought Jesus with him and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. Now, this is not a where are you from? Hey, where are you from? Uh, New Kensington, uh, lower borough. This is a where are you from? Are you an alien? Are you some celestial being? Are you something more than here on earth? Where are you from? Up there or somewhere? He genuinely was wondering how can you do this? And then Jesus didn't respond. And I imagine you ever see like the old cartoons like Elmer Fudd when he would get in trouble and Daffy Duck would be messing with him and he'd get angry. Next thing you know, you see the blood start coming up like a, like a thermometer and it just grow and grow and grow until his head gets bright red and blows up like the emoji, <laughs> mind blown. I believe this is what's happened to Pilate. He's probably getting so angry, so frustrated, scared. Why won't this guy answer me? He's just standing here doing nothing. And he goes on in verse verse 10, he says, so Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? And I imagine he's yelling at this point, like full voice, pretty angry, frustrated. He says, don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Pilate, once again, thinking that he has the authority. But yet, here we are, still in this situation, standing here. The same thing happening. Jesus responds, finally. And he says, You have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over... (coughs) The one who handed him over um, is, is, to, to you has the greater sin. So Jesus' the final response. And I'm sure his response is not what Pilate expected. My next point, power and authority is given from God and God alone. Jesus was able to remain quiet and silent this whole time because he knew that everything from the very moment that he was born through this very moment right here at this time in this passage. Everything was happening because God allowed it to happen. Everything. Pilate, the governor, was only given authority. He had no authority except for what God gave him. The, the high priest, the, the leaders of this church, had no authority except for what God gave him. And Jesus knew this, so Jesus didn't need to respond to anything because everything that was happening was happening for a reason, for a purpose. And that purpose we see next week. Everything going on was because God was allowing it to go on. Romans 13:1 it says, "Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God." The leaders of this world are there because God has allowed that to happen. Our bosses are there because God allowed that to happen. Any power and authority we get, we have because God has allowed it to happen. Everything that happens, happens because God allowed it to happen. Nothing Pilate was doing, nothing the high priests were doing, really mattered in the big picture. The big picture was Jesus had a plan. God sent him here to die on the cross for our sin, and he was going to go through all this with the intentions to die on the cross for our sin, and nothing was gonna change that because all authority is from God and God alone. Verse 12, from that moment on, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So the Jews, I believe, are seeing Pilate waffling here. He just brought Jesus in and he's like (laughs) talking to him and the Jews are like, we gotta do something. Let's pull out our trump card. Right? Let's pull it out. So here's what they did, basically. blackmailed Pilate into thinking that if, they, if he does not do what we want him to do, we're going to go ahead over his head, go to Caesar. We're going to present this to Caesar. And I can tell you that Tiberius, who was Caesar at this time, wanted nothing to do with this. He didn't have time for this petty little Jewish thing. Right? If you guys have ever seen any movies with Roman government and politics, there's always someone that's waiting in the, in the wings to, to take power, right? There's so much backstabbing that's happening. Right? Someone's always wanting to take that spot. And, and Pilate knew this, and he knew that, that if I messed up, Tiberius is probably going to take care of me and kick me out, if not worse, someone else is going to take my spot. They're going to go and make all these lies up. They're going to tell the, the, the Caesar that, that I wouldn't listen to him, that I let this criminal go. He doesn't want to deal with it. I can't let this happen. And when Pilate heard these words, he says, verse 13, he brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement. At this point, I think Pilate is starting to recognize, I've got to make a decision here. And he knows, I think, in the back of his head what that decision has to be. But he's maybe stalling a little bit. Verse 14, John tells us something specific. He said, it's preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. It's preparation for the Passover, right? This was the time where, where the Jews would go and they'd get all the supplies they need and they'd gather the, 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 the lamb to be slaughtered. And it's this very moment, it's convenient that John puts it right in this same spot where Pilate's ready to make his decision. The lamb being prepared for slaughter. It's very symbolic. And I think it's very important that John put that in there. Verse 15, they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king, but Caesar, the chief priest answered. It's funny that just a few days ago, they were prating Jesus down on a donkey, singing Hosanna, Hosanna, calling him the conquering king, to come to save the Jews. But yet here we are when they want something, again, trying to demonstrate some power that they truly don't have. We don't have any king but Caesar, Pilate. What are you talking about? Pilate makes his final decision and he handed him over to be crucified and they took Jesus away. Three sides, two sides thinking they have the power, one truly having all the power. And we know as Jesus is crucified and resurrected, it said that God then gives Jesus power over all. And that includes us who as believers are sitting at the right hand with Jesus. My next point, God desires to give each one of us power and authority. God wants us to experience this same power and authority. Now, this is not power and authority to to dictate or to command or to lord over. This is something completely different. This is power and authority from God, right? Because all power and authority is from God. This is power and authority from God, through God, to serve God. And this power and authority is not just something simple and little, right? Ephesians 18, or 1, 18 through 22, I pray that the eyes of the heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty work and of his strength. He exercises his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him on the right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything in the church. The power and authority that God is able to give us is the same power and authority that he used to raise Christ from the dead. This is not a little small change here. This is incredible power and authority, but again, not to do anything for ourselves, but to serve the kingdom of God. A few things I want to go over that that we have the power and authority to do. Give you guys something to take home with you. Something practical. First thing is we have the, the power and authority to preach the gospel and make disciples. It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them and obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God calls us to go out and make disciples. And he gives us the power and authority to do so. And, I, and, and, I, and it's important for us to recognize that because I want you guys, each one of you in this room right now, to realize that that. You are qualified to do this because God will give you the power and authority to do this. You can't sit in this room and say, ah, it's not for me. It's not what I want. This is the Great Commission. This is what we're called to do as a church body. This is what Fred was talking about earlier. We have the opportunity coming forward this week to start small groups, and we have this book outside for you guys to take advantage of so that you cannot understand that, yes, I do have the ability to be a disciple maker. No one's asking to get up front and preach the gospel. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about being able to go to someone and say, let me help you get from point A, the beginning, to point Z, to where you're making disciples yourself. Don't pass up opportunities to do this because God is calling us, each one of us, to do this. I think it's important that we recognize that. We can't be bystanders when it comes to disciple-making. Second thing that God allows, that God gives us the strength to do, um, he gives us the power and authority to stand against Satan. Luke ten nineteen. look, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. Each and every day, as we grow closer and closer to Christ, as our relationship becomes stronger and stronger, Satan then becomes more and more aggressive. And he attacks us in different ways. He finds our weaknesses. God tells us that we have the power and the authority to stand up against him. And there's nothing that he can do to any of us that we can't overcome through God. I've given you the full armor of God. I've given you the word of God. You guys have the power and authority to stand up against him. Don't be afraid. I am with you always. God gives us power and authority to approach him with confidence through Christ. We can go to God with boldness. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne, throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When we're struggling, when we're hurting, when we need help, God is saying, come to me. Come to me with confidence. Come to me with boldness, and I will give you everything that you need. Not only that, come to me and pray with boldness. Ask, seek, knock, and I will answer. It might not always be what we want. It might not always be the answer we expect, but God promises that he will answer. So we can go with God Go to God in boldness and confidence, knowing that God will meet every single one of our needs. God gives us the power and authority to be ambassadors for Christ. This is my favorite one. To be an ambassador for Christ. Second Corinthians 5:18, everything from is from God who is reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them as he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made, us, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, Man, that's pretty heavy stuff, right? It's a burden, but it's a privilege that we represent the righteousness of Christ, that we are ambassadors of the name of Jesus, that each and every day, non-believers, sinners, will look at me and say, oh, that's what Christ looks like. That's a burden, but a privilege. 1992, the, the Olympics, finally allowed basketball players, NBA basketball players to play in the Olympics, right? So they assembled the greatest team ever, the dream team. And on that team was the greatest player ever played the game, Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan, at this point, has cemented himself as the best player in the NBA. And he also had reached an incredible, monumental endorsement deal with Nike. In fact, he had his own shoe, right? Jordans. We know how popular those are now. But Michael was a, was a brand ambassador, and he stood firm with Nike. This was his brand. The Olympic Committee, however, had a deal with Reebok. And in Reebok, at the end, when, the, when, the, when the, uh, the team won the gold medal, they were all gonna get in their, their warm ups that were sponsored by Reebok. Michael Jordan wanted nothing to do with that. He's a Nike brand ambassador. I can't wear Reebok. But they were insistent. So if you ever go online, Google it, you can check it out. You'll see in the picture of the gold medal, Michael Jordan is wearing an American flag draped over the Reebok symbol because he stood that strong with his endorsement with Nike. He knew that I'm a brand ambassador and I need to stand strong with my brand, right? God is calling us to be that same thing, the brand ambassador for Christ. And we should represent it proudly. We... Should never let anything else, no other brand, be on our body. We need to represent Christ. And that's who people should see reflected in me. When someone looks at me, they should see Christ. That's a privilege, guys. That's an incredible thing that we have the ability to be an ambassador for Christ. And last thing, we have the power to surrender. What are you talking about, Sean? <laughs> we have the power to surrender. As believers in Christ, we have the power and authority to give Christ every aspect of our lives. Our struggles, our pains, our joys, our happinesses, our wives, our kids, our families, our jobs. Everything we can lay at the feet of Jesus and surrender it to him. Knowing, knowing that God is in control. God is in control. Non-believers can't do this. They can't. We have the power and authority to let God take control of our lives. And the last point I want to make for you guys, and I think the most important thing that I can tell you today, God has the power to save. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. God has the power to save I'm gonna ask you guys, if, you, if you're sitting in this room and, and, and you're not sure where your relationship with Christ is, I'm gonna implore you guys to, to take this opportunity today to invite Christ into your lives. God has the power to save you and there's nothing that you've done in the past. There's nothing that you've done to, 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 to be so egregious and so bad that God can't take you and save you from that. I assure you that God is longing and waiting for you to come to him Confess your sins so that he can save you and put yourself at the right hand of God with him. God wants nothing more for you to believe. If you're sitting here right now and, you, and maybe you've not where you need to be with your life. Maybe you've kind of strayed a little bit. You've kind of walked away from your relationship with God a little bit. Maybe you need to make a change. Now's the time. God has the power to save. God also has the power to heal. God has the power to forgive. God has the power to show grace. God has the power to show mercy. Nothing in your life right now is more than what God can handle. God wants you to be with him. God wants you to make disciples. God wants you to be in a loving relationship with him. God wants you to come to him with boldness and with confidence, and we can only do that when we're where we need to be with Christ.